From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The United States sent a billion dollars in advanced weapons to Ukraine last year while rejecting all of Russia's security guarantees. Did the U.S. and NATO want war? My conversation this week with activists Brian Becker and Walter Smolarik. I think this is the game plan. I think the U.S. put so much pressure on Russia and gave them these two unenviable choices. One, you accept the fact that we're going to make Ukraine a staging ground to threaten you in a way that you will never defend against. And if you militarily take action because we won't negotiate with you, then we're going to come down on you like a hammer and the entire imperialist world will unite against you, which is precisely what the U.S. wanted. Meanwhile, American corporations engage in price gouging. Congress fails to approve new funds for human needs and a few words on International Women's Day. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Declassified documents reveal that in the last year, the United States spent more than a billion dollars for advanced lethal weapons in Ukraine, at the same time that it was rejecting all of Russia's security guarantees in negotiations. According to the Washington Post, as early as December 2021, the U.S. was sending these weapons that now include Stinger anti-aircraft missile systems. After the U.S. and NATO dismissed Russia's security guarantees that the bordering Ukraine not be admitted to the NATO military alliance, Russia began its intervention into Ukraine on February 24th for what it called the demilitarization and denazification of the country before it could become a further staging ground for NATO. The New York Times reported this week that the U.S., and NATO just sent an additional 17,000 Javelin missiles to Ukraine. Meanwhile, even though the United States is not at war with Russia, Congress included $13.6 billion for Ukraine and the spending bill passed on Wednesday. But the bill excluded about $15 billion, which had been allocated for coronavirus relief, to fund treatments, research to combat new variants, and funding for global vaccination. According to the website Common Dreams, while the legislation excludes all that COVID-19 funding, it does contain a total of $782 billion in U.S. military spending, $29 billion more than President Biden requested. Peter Maybardik, Director of Public Citizens' Access to Medicines program, wrote on Twitter that failing to fund the fight against COVID is a choice to extend the pandemic. Also in economics this week, after Biden announced that the U.S. would no longer import Russian oil or coal, his administration sent envoys to Venezuela, a country that the U.S. has crippled with murderous sanctions and disinvestment, to strike a possible deal for oil imports. The Russian military says that it has discovered 30 biological labs funded by the U.S. military in Ukraine, and that it has secured documentation that the lab staff was ordered to destroy samples of plague, cholera, anthrax, and other pathogens just before the Russian intervention began. While issuing repeated denials of the existence of such labs and the U.S. connection to them, 
Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland, a key figure in the 2014 coup in Ukraine, confirmed to Congress on Tuesday, March 8th, the existence of the labs. Has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces. Despite Newland's statement of concern about Russians seizing the labs, Russia had already announced one day before her testimony their capture of the labs. On Wednesday, China's foreign ministry released a statement urging the U.S. to, quote, provide full clarification of its bio-militarization activities within and outside its borders and accept multilateral verification, end quote. In culture and media, while U.S. news organizations are largely erasing historical facts and context from their reporting on Ukraine, the 2016 movie Ukraine on Fire executive produced and starring Oliver Stone, is being shared by individuals and organizations working to get the full truth out about the United States' role in the 2014 coup carried out by fascists, and also about the 14,000 people killed primarily in the ethnic Russian areas of eastern Ukraine since then by the Kiev government. The movie is accessible for free on YouTube under Ukraine on Fire, 2016, Oliver Stone. And those are headlines and happenings. For the rest of the show, my conversation this week with activists Brian Becker and Walter Smolarik on the podcast, The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. Stay with us. As women around the world and people who support women's rights around the world are marking International Women's Day or International Working Women's Day, a holiday that had its roots in the United States and the labor movement in the United States, just like May Day did, but was then eviscerated and extinguished from consciousness in the United States based on the anti-communist period after World War II, at this moment, Women's rights are on the chopping block all over the country. In Texas, the ban on abortions after six weeks, which is still in effect. Limitations on abortion rights or women's right to control their own bodies in probably half the states in the country. In Florida, a new highly misogynist patriarchal measure to limit abortion to 15 weeks. Esther, here we are, 2022, the struggle of women is front and center as it always is in the class struggle because, of course, 
within society, women have been the most oppressed sector of society. And this is since the rise of class society. Anyway, let's just talk a little bit as we get started about International Women's Day. And then we're going to go, of course, to Ukraine. Right. Well, I think it's especially important to celebrate International Women's Day as a socialist because the day was first declared and celebrated by socialist women in the United States in 1909 to highlight the global fight for equal rights for women. So the declaration was made by the Socialist Party of America a year after 15,000 women marched through the Lower East Side of Manhattan, demanding a shorter work week, better pay, voting rights and condemning child labor. And that first celebration was after a century of the industrial phase of capitalism really revving up, pulling more women and children into factories as early as March 8th in 1857, Women working in clothing and textile factories held a street demonstration demanding better working conditions in New York. And later in 1909, on November 23rd, more than 20,000 young women and girls launched an 11-week general strike in New York's shirtwaist industry. And just two years after that first declaration, an estimated 1 million people in Europe marched 19th, 1911 as International Women's Day with strikes and mass protests. And we know that an observance of International Women's Day by Russian women organizers started a movement there that ultimately provided a spark for the Russian Revolution and overthrow of the Tsar in 1917. But we also know that here in the United States, despite the growing power of that burgeoning movement, capitalists, factory owners were pushing to maintain their exploitation and super profits. And less than one week after those mass demonstrations in Europe, the poor working conditions culminated in the infamous Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City that killed 146 women and girls as young as 12 years old on March 25th, 1911. And that horror in New York was not only remembered for a long time every International Women's Day, but spurred founding of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Now, most of this history, as told, erases the Black enslaved working women in the United States and throughout this entire hemisphere, not to mention having no control over their bodies, children, or families. And maybe not enough has been done to explore how enslaved labor lowered the threshold of wages and working conditions for working class white people, and how after emancipation, anti-Black racism was used to divide the working class and to pay white men more. And we know about the attempts to exclude Black women from the suffrage movement. So when International Women's Day was revived in the 1970s by radical women, including women of color, they stressed the triple jeopardy of gender, race, and class oppression. And linking it to women in the burgeoning anti-colonial movements in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and recognizing the many women all around the globe fighting for better conditions, not at a single job or against one employer or boss, but against exploitation by capitalism, which was created by their labor and by the stolen issue of their bodies. And so... On this International Women's Day, I don't really look to symbols paraded before me like, you know, Hillary Clinton or Madeleine Albright, who said that, you know, a half a million dead Iraqi children was worth whatever colonial lesson they were trying to inflict on Iraq back in the 1990s. Or I don't look to women of color like Vice President Kamala Harris or U.N. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield serving as really intersectional imperialists, holding up the very capitalist order that my sheroes, you know, fought 
against and fight against today. But I look at, for example, at Harriet Tubman, a fierce anti-slavery fighter, nurse, spy, and scout for the revolution to free enslaved people in this country. And we are also celebrating her 200th birthday this month, Brian and Walter. All right. We're going to turn now to Ukraine. Walter, we've spent a lot of time in the last actually six weeks since the crisis began on this show talking about the events as they unfolded. And I think it's been very helpful for our listeners. It's been helpful for us. Hopefully, it's been helpful for the larger movement. But here we are. We're in week two of the Russian military operation or Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of the things that's most important is that the so-called fog of war, where it's hard to really know what's true and what's not true, has been deliberately made harder because all of the U.S. mass media echoing the U.S. government and pursuing the same political agenda as the U.S. government and NATO, for instance, has created a propaganda machine about Ukraine that makes it almost impossible to know what's going on. For instance, every building that has been struck by a missile It's guaranteed to be announced in the U.S. This is another Russian missile. When we know that the Azov Brigade, the Nazis who have been incorporated into the National Guard in Ukraine for the last few years, the forces who carried out the armed fascist-led coup d'etat against a neutral government in Kiev in 2014, those forces are relentlessly shelling the Russian areas in the Donbass, in Donetsk, in Luhansk, and a great number of those buildings have been destroyed. There was a negotiated agreement between the Ukrainian side and the Russian side to have an evacuation corridor for civilians in Maripol, in a city that was at one time controlled by one of the People's Republics, but then was taken over by the Azov Brigade. The Russians say that not one person left as a consequence of the evacuation corridor. And they say it's because the fascists are keeping people in the area and using them essentially as human shields, the way al-Qaeda did in Syria. The Azov Brigade and the Ukrainians say, no, the reason people aren't leaving is because of heavy Russian shelling makes it impossible. Anyway, we know that propaganda and information And the distribution of information is key in all wars. Each side and all sides use propaganda and information. But as a consequence, it makes it very hard to know what's exactly true when you're not there. So rather than focusing on what specifically is going on, I want to stay focused on why this is happening. Why is this war happening? What caused the war? And we've gone over this many, many times. But as we discuss it, and as days go by, we're learning new information all the time. And I think the new information is extremely important. One piece of new information has been revealed in a major article in the Washington Post. We discussed it in our editorial meeting. But it shows that starting in early December 2021, as the crisis was heating up, The United States and NATO were shipping hundreds of millions, actually billions of dollars 
of weapons, including advanced weapons, including, I think, 17,000 Javelin missiles to Ukrainian forces, including to the Azov Brigade, the fascists. And this was happening at the very moment, the very moment that Putin said at his end of the year press conference and then announced publicly that Russia had red lines and the red lines were Ukraine could not be brought into NATO either formally or as a de facto member and that Russia would not allow advanced weapons to be placed on its border, this 1,200 mile long border with Ukraine. This, Putin said, was a red line, right? This is a red line. And he said, we're serious now. And then at the same time, they amassed 150,000 troops inside of Russia and also in Belarus, which is a ally of Russia. They had basically surrounded from the north and the east, Ukraine. And so Putin was saying, look, negotiate now. That's plan A. We really mean it. And if you don't, we're going to use this military force. So if you want us not to have a war, all of us not to have a war, give us these security guarantees. And to which the U.S. said, no, no, no. Now, we know that part, but we didn't know that at the same moment they were saying no, under those circumstances, they were shipping a billion or billions of new weapons into Ukraine in December. These come from classified documents. The Washington Post did a story about it two days ago. And obviously, Russia, Walter, knew those weapons were coming in. So Putin came to the conclusion that there was never going to be a negotiated settlement because if you want a negotiated settlement, you actually talk. You don't send a billions of dollars of weapons, including to Nazi forces in Ukraine. They weren't all Nazis, but there are Nazis there and they have significant military forces inside the National Guard. Putin had to come to the conclusion, and I think did come to the conclusion, that the U.S. was never going to negotiate and that if Russia allowed Ukraine to become a staging ground for all of these weapons with this very aggressive posture by the United States and NATO. Once those weapons were there, they were never going to be taken out. There would just be more and more and more of them. And those missiles with a flight time of seven, as we've said over and over again, seven minutes or eight minutes to their Russian targets, Russia would never be able to defend against. I mean, when you just know that fact, that when Russia was putting its foot down and calling for negotiations, and formally Biden said yes to the negotiations, right? They engaged in talks at that time, but at the same time, they're sending massive amounts of weapons to Ukraine. Russia must have understood that to be the negotiations were nothing but a fig leaf for the further militarization of Ukraine on their border. Anyway, that's an important piece of information. Yeah, that's extremely important. It's extremely important because I think that that I mean, I completely agree with you. This war would not have happened if the United States primarily and its NATO allies were willing to give very basic security guarantees to Russia that Ukraine would essentially be a neutral country, as you say, not a staging ground for advanced weapons. I would not join the NATO military alliance, which I mean, that's no big sacrifice, right? Like Ukraine joining NATO would not make Ukraine any more secure. Obviously, I mean, it provoked this war. Ukraine joining NATO would not make the people of the United States or any other NATO country more secure because, of course, that move would just escalate global tensions and actually bring bring perhaps even a nuclear war all the closer. I mean, that's really what it would have taken to avoid all of this chaos and suffering that we see unfolding right now. 
So I, I think certainly that was a big piece of the calculation to launch the invasion. And I mean, in addition to what's been happening in sort of like the most acute phase of this crisis in the last few weeks, the last few months, I mean, there's the last 25 years, too, that is being taken into account by Putin and the other top decision makers in the Russian government. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of the expansion of NATO, which was sort of in the works even before the Soviet Union was formally collapsed. And then it really began in earnest around 1997. Then you had the NATO bombing and destruction of Yugoslavia, Serbia. You had the NATO invasion of Afghanistan, the war in Georgia provoked by the Georgian government, which is a NATO ally. You had the destruction of Libya. And that was done on the basis of a UN Security Council resolution that Russia feels like it was essentially tricked into not vetoing. And then there was the coup in Ukraine in 2014, in February 2014, where a neutral government, a government that was pursuing a policy of neutrality, was overthrown by force by supporters of the United States and the European Union and basically of NATO. So, I mean, the whole chain of events needs to be understood in its totality to make any sense of the war that's exploding right now. I want to bring to people's attention an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal, December 22nd, 2021. It's an opinion piece written by John R. Denny. Now, John R. Denny is with the Atlantic Council. That's a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. The Atlantic Council, in many ways, sort of serves as something of a brain trust or think tank for NATO. It's partly funded by NATO. It's also funded by many corporations, the Atlantic Council. Denny is also a research professor at U.S. Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute. Now, so again, he wrote this article December 22nd, 2021. This is at the same time Putin is having this press conference announcing red lines and announcing that the Russians are serious, that they're not going to allow Ukraine to be a staging ground. Listen to what Denny says. Now, this is an important figure in the Atlantic Council. And obviously, it was an important enough article that the Wall Street Journal wanted to publish it. Here it is. Regardless, Mr. Putin's tactics have placed the West in a reactive mode, hoping to avoid a war in Europe that could result in tens of thousands of casualties. The death and destruction could far outpace that of the relatively more limited war in Donbass, where as many as 14,000 have died since 2014. Now, remember, when the Russians are saying 14,000 people were killed in those eastern provinces, a lot of media outlets in the West say that's propaganda, but he's just assuming it. Yeah, 14,000 have died since 2014. But then I want to continue. People should really listen to this. But Mr. Putin's price for turning down the heat is an anathema to Western values of national self-determination and sovereignty. Mr. Putin, therefore, appears to have taken quite a risk. And the West ought to exploit his gamble by maintaining a hardline stance in diplomatic discussions. In the best case, Mr. Putin is forced to back down, losing face domestically and internationally, even if his state media spins it as a victory or claims the buildup was merely part of an exercise. And catch this. In the worst case, if Mr. Putin's forces invade, Russia is likely to suffer long-term 
serious and even debilitating strategic costs in three ways. First, another Russian invasion of Ukraine would forge an even stronger anti-Russian consensus across Europe. Although the EU has shown a remarkable degree of solidarity in maintaining its limited sanctions on Russia since the 2014 invasion of Ukraine, that wasn't really an invasion, that was the referendum in Crimea, there are cracks in the edifice, meaning the edifice of NATO. Germany's new left-leaning government hasn't yet found its footing on Russia, Italy, Austria, Hungary, and even France have shown a willingness to consider opening up to the Kremlin despite the Russian forces in Crimea and Donbass. And NATO's attention and resources remain split between Russia on the one hand and instability and insecurity emanating from across the Mediterranean Sea on the other. Russian tanks crossing into Ukraine would focus minds and efforts. Second, a Russian reinvasion of Ukraine would likely result in another round of more debilitating economic sanctions that would further weaken Russia's economy, disconnecting Russia from the tools of global finance and investment, such as the SWIFT banking payment system, would make it difficult for Moscow to earn money from its oil exports. Similarly, a ban on Western institutions trading of existing Russian debt in secondary markets would limit Moscow's ability to finance development. Over time, a stronger, more effective round of sanctions would hasten Russia's economic decline relative to the West. It would reduce its power overall and make it far more expensive for Mr. Putin to intimidate and destabilize his neighbors. Third, and this I'll end with this. Third, another Russian invasion of Ukraine, even if militarily successful in the short run, is likely to spawn a guerrilla war in those areas of Ukraine occupied by Russian forces. This will sap the strength and morale of Russia's military while undercutting Mr. Putin's domestic popularity and reducing Russia's soft power globally. Isn't this something? Esther and Walter. So here's the Atlantic Council. John Denny saying, look, a war, if we stick with our hardline position and push Russia into a corner and they actually invade, that would be great. It would reunite Europe under the U.S. command. It would unite France and Germany under U.S. leadership. They would turn against Russia, debilitating sanctions, the disconnection of Russia from the SWIFT banking system. And then a guerrilla war. Right now, all of those things are happening. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you listen to what Hillary Clinton said, I think on MSNBC last week, she was almost chirping at the idea that Russia could be bogged down in Ukraine just like it was in Afghanistan. And she kind of used the Afghanistan model to basically use that as an example of how an insurgency could be funded how it could be armed, and how it could possibly even defeat Russia. And she quipped that, you know, things didn't work out so well for Russia there. And there were unintended consequences, of course, but she didn't go into that. She didn't talk about the beginnings of al-Qaeda and the blowback, but she was almost giddy at the idea that Russia could be bogged down there. (laughs) 
You are listening to my conversation this week with activists Brian Becker and Walter Smolarik on the podcast, The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. This is Esther Averam, and this is On the Ground. Stay with us. When you talk about unintended consequences, Hillary Clinton is a remarkable politician. Oh, yeah, of course, there were unintended consequences. That would be, let's see, the destruction of the World Trade Center. That would be the September 11th attacks. That was the blowback, wasn't it? And then there was the war in Afghanistan after that, which lasted another 20 years. Oh, yeah, there were some unintended consequences. I mean, Walter, the fact that American politicians like Hillary Clinton can talk like this and get away with it. It's amazing, but I think this is the game plan. I think the U.S. put so much pressure on Russia and gave them these two unenviable choices. One, you accept the fact that we're going to make Ukraine a staging ground to threaten you in a way that you will never defend against. And if you militarily take action because we won't negotiate with you, then we're going to come down on you like a hammer and the entire imperialist world will unite against you which is precisely what the U.S. wanted. Yeah, I mean, I I think that this is going in their favor in a lot of ways. I mean, when you just look at their interests in a completely cynical, power-hungry way, which is, of course, the way that they view the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, NATO countries that weren't 100% on board with like the total unmitigated aggression strategy of the United States are now totally on board with that. That includes Germany most significantly. Germany canceled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They reversed their longstanding policy of not shipping arms into a combat zone. And they pledged to increase their defense spending, quote unquote, defense spending to 2% of GDP, which has been a longstanding demand of the United States. So yeah, I mean, this and the same is true of Finland. Denmark, for instance, has always had like an opt out clause of the common European defense and foreign policy They're They're talking about getting rid of that now. So yeah, the imperialist camp is absolutely united behind the United States in this ultra aggressive posture. The economic sanctions are are completely devastating, and they're taking the form of, uh, you know, not just actions like official actions by the government, but because of the war frenzy that's been stirred up over the war in Ukraine, lots and lots of private companies are at their own initiative withdrawing from the Russian market. So the economic war is really promising to have a crippling effect on the Russian economy, which means a crippling effect on Russian workers who are going to be hit the most by it, especially by inflation as it relates to the cost and availability of essential goods like food, medicine, things like that. So they've succeeded in that front. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as you said at the beginning, Brian, it's hard to know exactly where things stand on the battlefield. But, you know, if this is shaping up to be uh, armed conflict that the Russian military can get bogged down in. And I mean, certainly it does seem like, you know, many tens of thousands of people are sort of rallying to the Ukrainian side, both inside of Ukraine and outside of Ukraine to fight, to engage in an armed conflict with the Russian military. Yeah, that could be something that could last for years and years and years. And as you're saying, that's what the United States would prefer, sort of a, an Afghanistan style insurgency that 
weighs down the Russian government, the Russian economy, and the Russian military and makes it less capable of essentially standing up to what the United States wants to accomplish in other parts of the world, particularly in the areas immediately surrounding Russia in the republics of the former Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. All right. I want to actually play the Hillary Clinton audio. This is on MSNBC. I mean, this is so unconscionable and also so dumb, but also very revealing on the part of the thinking of the U.S. I mean, she says, yeah, let's go do this. Anyway, let's play the tape and then we're going to come back. Here it is. But remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980. And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know. But the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. Walter, Esther, I mean, it's incredible what Hillary Clinton said. She said there's some unintended consequences, but so what? They were a well-funded, motivated insurgency. These are the people who became al-Qaeda. These are the people who the United States said it's top priority from 2000 you know, up until 2018 was the war on terror against al-Qaeda. And when she says some unintended consequences, it wasn't just September 11th. Look what happened to the people in Afghanistan. You know, women and girls had rights during the socialist government in Afghanistan. Peasants had the right to land. There was land to the tiller. Workers had the right to minimum wage. I mean, the Afghan revolution was had so much promise and the U.S. deliberately funded these so-called Mujahideen who became al-Qaeda. They were funding Osama bin Laden. They destroyed not just the Soviets in Afghanistan, because the Soviets actually were winning that war in Afghanistan when Gorbachev pulled the troops out. They wanted to end the conflict for the Soviet side. But it destroyed the people of Afghanistan. It began a war that ended not until really 2021. It plunged Afghanistan into 40 years of war. So to all of the people who are crying crocodile tears right now about Ukrainians, if you listen to U.S. policymakers, they don't give a damn. They don't give a damn. They don't care about Ukrainians any different than they don't care about the people of Afghanistan. Those people in Afghanistan and the people in Ukraine are simply pawns in this geostrategic contest to weaken Russia, not because Russia is menacing the United States, but the U.S. can't treat Russia as an equal major power in the world because countries in Europe would start to gravitate in the direction of Russia and the U.S. hegemonic position, the, the world order that was established after World War II, where the U.S. was the boss of the capitalist world, that would start to shatter. And so the cynicism here, I mean, thank you, Hillary Clinton, for being so honest. So right, honest right. in your imperialist language. Go ahead, Esther. Well, I, I think that a lot of people in the United States and uh, throughout Europe agree with you. And they know that it's true. I, I happened to listen to George Galloway's podcast video show, live video show, which has been, you know, 
I guess, banned on Sputnik now. But uh, he did a poll on YouTube, Twitter, and Telegram at the same time. And the vote was something like, you know, is NATO basically just using the Ukrainian people for their own ends? And the vote was something like either from 75% to 95% of people saying yes. So, you know, they, corporate media may think that they have everyone in their palm, but there's a sizable part of the population who's seen this playbook before. And they know what happened in Iraq. They know what happened in Afghanistan. They know what happened in Libya. And they know what's happening now. But I wanted to say another point about what Hillary Clinton is saying. When she's talking about funding and insurgency, you're talking about funding and putting weapons in the hands of the most radical edge of fighters against whoever you're trying to defeat. And in Ukraine, that's the far right. That is the Azov Battalion. That is all the neo-Nazis coming from around Europe or wherever they're trying to recruit foreign fighters to go there and fight Russia. And so when we hear about rogue actions and And we speculate about whether Zelensky really has power over all these different factions coming to fight there or that are there right now fighting. That's what we have to look at. And they're basically talking about funding neo-Nazis and the far right element to fight in Ukraine. Yeah. And I mean, can you imagine what those forces would do after they leave Ukraine? I mean, you know, those people with extreme right wing fascistic neo-Nazi ideologies that would naturally be attracted to to an insurgency, an anti-Russian insurgency in Ukraine, they would gain combat experience, they would gain connections, they would get weapons, they would be able to use their exploits for recruitment. And then that would blow back on the countries from which they came. And I, I bet a lot of them would come from the United States. I mean, this is a tremendously dangerous prospect for the world to be even considering empowering forces like these. And it's something that happens again and again throughout history when people or a country is targeted for regime change or a country is determined to be essentially disposable, dispensable by the managers of the empire. And if they can, you know, the bloodier a battlefield, they can turn it into the better. And I think that's the calculation they've made tragically for Ukraine. One of the things that we are witnessing is a very sharp division among those forces that typically work together in what is loosely called the anti-war or peace movement. And it's not just in the United States. It's all around the world. A lot of people are demonstrating, they're demanding, one, no war, meaning Russia out of Ukraine. And secondly, that NATO expansion should stop, or in some cases, NATO should be dissolved. Other people are marching under the banners that Russia And the United States are just two sort of symmetrical imperialisms that are fighting it out to loot the world. We reject those kind of positions. I I think putting equivalency between the United States and Russia under the circumstances is very misleading and very destructive to political understanding and political awareness and consciousness. Yes, on the surface, you could say, well, look, it's the Russian military that moved into Ukraine. They pulled the trigger. They fired the first shot. But then if you decontextualize what Russia did and why it's doing it, then you don't really understand that it's not two equivalent powers fighting each other. Russia is not trying to put missiles on the U.S.-Mexican border or the U.S.-Canadian border. 
Russia is not amassing the other major nuclear powers to encircle and contain the United States. And by the way, containment, usually people think of containment as like stopping someone's forward march. There's another way to think of containment, which is you put somebody in a container, like they can't move. And that actually is what the U.S. means by containment. They want to put Russia and eventually China, which is an even bigger foe for the United States, in a container. Not in order to stop their forward expansion. Neither Russia or China are really trying to like overthrow Western capitalism. They want to put them in a container because the U.S. envisions or has come to the conclusion that the rise of China as a major power or the rise of Russia as a major power and their independent powers of the United States means that the U.S. domination over the world order will start to quickly unravel. And so that's why those positions of drawing equivalency are wrong. And thirdly, the Russians didn't create this crisis. When Ukraine was neutral, things were quiet. What changed everything was the Maidan coup d'etat led by fascist forces, literally. They were the muscle that dispatched and destroyed the parliament and the existing Ukrainian government. And the US and the EU held the overthrow of a democratically elected government by fascist forces that they were supporting as a great day for Ukraine. And then the war in the East against Russian people started. And thousands, according to the, you know, the guy from the Atlantic Council, he also uses the figure 14,000 dead, 14,000 Ukrainians dead. We didn't hear any crying about them in the Western media. No crocodile tears for them. And then at the same time, the subsequent governments that came after the coup are insisting that Ukraine will indeed become part of NATO. And whether and even before their formal members the U.S. and NATO are pumping in billions of dollars of advanced weapons against Russia. So if you say, oh, well, Russia was the one that was the aggressor and decontextualize it from the circumstance where Russia doesn't want to be put in a container contained in a way that will allow its adversaries to destroy it later on. If you don't do that, then you're really missing the big picture. So Right now, the U.S. is crowing. They're happy. They think Russia's in a corner. But in fact, all of this is going to unravel. In the meantime, Esther, I mean, the hysteria, not just against Putin or the Russian government, but against Russians is so pronounced. It's so gross and disgusting. And it's everywhere. Absolutely. So I have to credit this because I heard it on another show last week. But what we're witnessing really is BDS, the boycott divestment sanctions movement that we've been wanting for decades now against Israel, but now it's being put into effect against Russia. And this is the U.S. and all of Europe galvanizing the remaining strength it has and you know, economic, social, corporate media capital to respond in anger increasingly with a level of hate against Russia, Russian people. And that's because Russia is doing what they pushed Russia to do. And that is to create a security guarantee by military force that Russia could not get after months of negotiating. And it's obvious, as you mentioned earlier in the show, this is to do, they see that this is an opportunity to do the maximum amount of damage to the world's other major military power. 
So right now, the Russian news organizations, RT and Sputnik, are now banned in EU countries. RT America was demonetized on YouTube, deplatformed, and entirely shut down their operations here in the United States. Apple and Google removed publications, those publications apps from their respective app stores. We know the International Olympic Committee banned Russian and Belarusian athletes from the Beijing Paralympics. Conductor Valerie Gergiev and soprano Anna Netrebko were abruptly canceled from very prestigious sold-out dates in New York City at Carnegie Hall and the Met. Russia is banned from the this year's Eurovision Song Contest. And those of us who are sports fans, we know that Russia top tennis stars have been subjected to harassment and pushed to give on-air camera statements. They're trying to get them to like denounce their own country, like top tennis stars Daniil Medvedev and Karen Kachanov had to remove the Russian flag from their Instagram pages. So these are actions never required of American athletes during the 20 years of invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq, or they're not required of Israeli athletes who live in an apartheid state. I follow the hip hop artist Low Key on Instagram, and he posted how in 2019, the Eurovision contest took place on seized Palestinian land there. And that was once a village called Al Sheikh Muwanis. He also added that during the 2014 bombing of Gaza that killed 2,300 people, not only did Google not ban any IDF YouTube channels, it actually allowed a game called Bomb Gaza to be sold on Google Play. And other Gaza-inspired games available were Gaza Assault, Code Red, and Iron Dome. And I also heard Ali Abulima of Electronic Inafada last week talk about how the current hysteria reminds him so much of post 9-11. And I wanted to just give a few more kind of examples of voices that are countering this overwhelming narrative that I think that are starting to make some cracks in this narrative that we're bombarded with, especially here in the U.S. from corporate media. And some of them are the the coverage that we talked about last week in terms of the racist treatment of Africans and Indians and other people of color in Ukraine. You don't see it everywhere, but it's really drawing a lot of people's attention and making them think differently about this war and just kind of this good guy, bad guy narrative that CNN and MSNBC wants to paint and the New York Times. And also there's been critiques of interviews of the far right in Ukraine, including members of the Azov Battalion, other neo-Nazi units, and including one interview where the portrait of Stefan Bandera was in the background. And this is a notorious Nazi from the World War II era who tortured and killed, you know, Jews and other Polish people. There's also been a really important recirculating of Oliver Stone's film, Ukraine on Fire, which I would recommend. It's on YouTube and it gives a really complete history of the 2014 coup, the massacre by the far right of people in Odessa and in other areas of Eastern Ukraine. It's a real primer also on these so-called color revolutions 
fomented by the U.S. and the West in countries around the world, not just in Ukraine, and how they are built and formulated. I think that's really important. And finally, I would say that sometimes in their effort to keep demonizing Russia on corporate media, they wind up, you know, dropping a stone on their own foot or a boulder on their own foot. Because, for example, when CNN was interviewing someone from TV Rain, a shutdown media outlet in Russia. This journalist, basically, she was asked, "Okay, well, what are people in Russia hearing about the war and the lead up to the war? And she said, well, they're hearing all this nonsense about how NATO has come right up to our border and how they are threatening us with weapons. And everyone in my camp, like listening to her, talks back to the TV and says, That's true, though. That's true. They're hearing the truth. And we're certainly not. We have to be really alarmed by this vilification of Russians. I mean, you mentioned the BDS. The BDS actually, you know, targets Israeli institutions, Israeli businesses. It doesn't like attack Israeli individual citizens. In that sense, this is actually not like BDS, because this is more like what the U.S. did to the Japanese population at the beginning of World War II, where people were put into camps or categorized, not because of what they did, not because of anything they did. It was because of who they were, because they were Japanese and they were put in internment camps. And when you think of the level, Esther, of the hysteria against Russian people, it's just so off the chart. The International Cat Federation You got that? International Cat Federation banned Russian-bred cats from being registered in any of its pedigree (laughs) books. I'm telling you the truth. A Russian-themed restaurant in Washington, D.C. in the last week was vandalized and broken into, even though its owner actually has no ties to the Russian government. And in fact, he's not Russian. The EA Sports announced this week that it was removing Russian national and club teams from all of its video games. And of course, I don't know if you heard, but the very principled and I would say almost heroic Judo Federation announced that it was removing Vladimir Putin as its honorary president. Anyway, off the charts demonization of Russian people. And that's the thing, Esther, when you think about what's going on The U.S. created the conditions for the war. And as I mentioned, there were a number of the Washington think tanks. It wasn't just the Atlantic Council. And I'm sure big parts of the Biden administration, including that whole foreign policy team, Anthony Blinken, Kurt Campbell, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Nuland. These were the people who brought the Maidan Square. They were like up and coming imperialist, you know, second tier politicians and bureaucrats in 2014 but they helped lead the Maidan uprising. Now they have full power. Now they really control the State Department. They've been pushing the envelope. They've been saying these are non-starters about Russia's demands to have just have Ukraine be a neutral country. And it's Russians who pay the price and it's Ukrainians pay the price. The Ukrainians are pawns. You have this clip from John Mearsheimer right after the Maidan coup where he talks very almost prophetically about how the Ukrainians are being used and what likely is going to happen. What's going on here is that the West is leading 
Ukraine down the primrose path. And the end result is that Ukraine is going to get wrecked. And I believe that the policy that I'm advocating, which is neutralizing Ukraine and then building it up economically and getting it out of the competition between Russia on one side and NATO on the other side, is the best thing that could happen to the Ukrainians. What we're doing is encouraging the Ukrainians to play tough with the Russians. We're encouraging the Ukrainians to think that they will ultimately become part of the West because we will ultimately defeat Putin and we will ultimately get our way. Time is on our side. And of course, the Ukrainians are playing along with this and the Ukrainians are almost completely unwilling to compromise with the Russians and instead want to pursue a hardline policy. Well, as I said to you before, if they do that, the end result is that their country is going to be wrecked. And what we're doing is, in effect, encouraging that outcome. I think it would make much more sense for us to, neutral, to, to work to create a neutral Ukraine. It would be in our interest to bury this crisis as quickly as possible. It certainly would be in Russia's interest to do so. And most importantly, it would be in Ukraine's interest to put an end to the crisis. Right. So, yeah, that's been a piece that's been circulating and left media that is still surviving, that is able to kind of push back on this overwhelming corporate media narrative. And, you know, it's good because it's kind of taking people back to facts and history and in corporate media, the Maidan, the 2014 coup is not discussed in this whole way that history is being erased. And they just want to start this conflict like two weeks ago. And that will do it for today's episode of on the ground, on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital. Today, we featured my conversation this week with activists, Brian Becker and Walter Smolarik on the podcast, The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org, and you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averam, is also on all your podcast platforms, the new podcasts, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included Mother Tribute to Native American Women by Ulali, Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, 
if you know it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way please support go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show and i would very much appreciate your support and it would mean so much to us at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash on the ground show or you can go to the show website which you might go to anyway if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.